Hey everyone, welcome back to the Let's Talk Podcast with me and David, and today we're going to be doing one of our favorite films of all time, 1989's Batman, directed by Tim Burton. Uh, this is easily in my top five movies of all time. I don't know about you, David. Where would you put this? Yeah, I agree, John. Um, I have Batman around number three of my top movies of all time. Is the only thing in between that Jaws and the Terminator? <laughs> <laughs> well, the Terminator would be in the top ten. Ah, okay. but unfortunately, it's not above Batman. Uh, I understand that. I understand that. Batman would be uh, probably a three on my list, too, I would say. It's just that good. Over the years, it's just risen and risen because it's just so rewatchable. This is like comfort food to me yeah. at this point. I could just put it on half the movie and just enjoy it because I've seen it so many times. It's very easy to watch. It's very enjoyable. It's it's not overly complicated. No, it's not. It's a very simple tale. And I mean, I wasn't alive in 1989, but I know you were. So you were there for uh, the Batmania. This was essentially the movie that took over the world that year. It was the biggest, one of the biggest summer blockbusters of all time, building up to the release of it. People were seeing it in theaters like 10 times that summer. But you didn't see it uh, until you saw it on VHS, right? Yeah, that's right. I think I was a wee bit young to go and see it. But I remember that summer. I remember my friends in the street. Some of them were older who had seen the movie and they would be telling us bits of it. Um, some of my memories of that summer was just clapping the, the cards, the collector cards. Oh, yeah. And with the tune book. Yeah, Matt has a few of those cards. He with they, There's a store by us that sells retro cards like that, and he got the whole box of them. I had collected a hell of a lot of these back in 1989, in the summer of 89, and because I couldn't watch the movie in the, in the cinema, um, you know, you're kind of piecing it together and trying to, like, work out the story, and your friends were, like, telling you things about the movie from the cards. But I actually remember um, there's stickers with it as well, and I had the stickers, like, stuck with my bedroom door. But I eventually threw them cards out. And years later, when I get back into the movie again, when I was a teenager and I started getting into like Batman and the comics, I regretted throwing them out. Because I was only like seven years of age in the, in the summer of 89, turning it in the, the October. Um, and I regretted it for years. But when the internet came around and eBay and things like that, I was able to obtain a full box of the, the cards. Uh, so I have them myself now. And there was actually two um, editions. I don't remember having the second edition when I was a kid. So I was able to obtain both editions still in the boxes. Oh, nice. That's awesome that you actually were able to go back and get those. It's cra- I always feel guilty about stuff like that from when I was a kid and uh, end up getting rid of them. But when I actually, I didn't, I sure saw Batman at a way too young of age, I feel like. I saw it, I was three years old and I can remember seeing it on TV because I had just seen Batman Forever when it just came out. And then my, oh, yes. I told, I think I've told you before, my mom uh, had me pretty young, so she wasn't going to watch kids' movies. So I remember we sat down and watched Batman Forever, and then she wanted to go back and watch Batman and Batman Returns again. And I was so young, I was actually scared of the Joker until I was like six years old. <laughs> he petrified me with that white face and the smile. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what the funny thing was talking about that? I mean, I was seven years of age, and. I don't remember actually being scared of, of the Joker. I was more fascinated by him. And I, I remember about, back then, actually, they started the show repeat of the 1960s show. And I remember getting up in the morning and getting ready to go to school and having my breakfast. And it, it was on the, the TV, the television show. And like I think like most kids, you might are more fascinated by the villains than you are Batman because they're more flamboyant and they're more colorful and they're more 
Satan in a lot of ways than, than Batman. Yeah, I agree. And I think that actually leans into like what this movie is about in a way, because uh, originally Tim Burton was hired to direct this movie in 1986. He didn't get greenlit until after Beetlejuice came out. It's showtime. And this movie was a shift more into a darker tone than what those 1960s show was because of books like Frank Miller's The Dark Knight and yeah. The Killing Joke. And Tim Burton was more fascinated with those darker tales. And then that kind of lent into this movie. And I guess he was a bigger fan of the villains, too, because this Batman movie, Batman's already Batman when we start the film. As far as I'm aware, the producer, Megan Houston, he's one of the producers. He's the executive producer. He actually even directs the Batman. He bought the rights to Batman in the 70s for like $10,000. That's a steal. Um, yeah, I mean, Warner Brothers actually owned DC back then, but they didn't know what they had. No, they um, had no and, idea. Yeah, and Megan Houston actually was embarrassed by the television show. He big Batman fan, read the comics, but could see... That there was a darkness to Batman, which the television show didn't portray or couldn't portray because of the Thames. And what his whole dream was to bring a dark, brooding Batman to the screen. And of course, when Superman was released, um, that kind of gave an idea to the studios of what they could do. So he tried for 10 years to get Batman off the ground. Um, but, but that was his vision, was basically to have a serious, dark, brooding Batman. And it wasn't until really Tim Burton came on board that uh, he shared that same type of vision. And he was the one that basically sold it to the studio that this was the right direction to go. I agree. I mean, I think they made the right choice. And I, I always find it fascinating that this movie got made in the way it was being dark because coming off of the Superman movies, which are he's the hero, it's very bubblegum, very, you know pop block you know very summer box office where the good guy has to come out at top even at the very end of the first superman movie he brings the villain he brings lex luther to jail like you know the German man then he gives yeah. the ward in the you know batman is not that kind of character batman is very dark he has a very dark past he himself yeah. is a very you know dark individual and the whole movie like to sell this as a blockbuster it really is very unique and i i'm actually very surprised that warner brothers green lit it as it is, to be honest with you. I, I know that the, the screen, the first screen, one of the first screenwriters on board was uh, Paul Magowicz. Magowicz, right? And he actually, Magowicz, he wrote some of the James Bond movies in the 60s. We've talked about him, I think, before, or, or I think we've mentioned him. Oh, I was going to say, it's funny because I was reading about that earlier. I was reading about Magowicz and I was like, we just talked about him a couple weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, and I actually meant to bring him up in our one of our Bond podcasts and say it because you're a fan of Papa. Say, do you know that he actually wrote a draft of Batman? The thing was, I think he had something to do with Superman movies. I think he, he had a hand in the Superman movies as well. So they brought him on board. But he quickly realized that you couldn't write a Batman story, make a Superman story. They didn't want to make it an origin story. I don't know if he just he opted out himself or he gave a draft over. But that, that's, that, that's what they came to the conclusion of. And then you had the producers, John Peter and Peter's, Peter Gubber. Well, they said essentially what they wanted to make was an ultimate Batman versus Joker uh, movie. I think that was kind of like, a, from a structure point of view, I think that was a starting point for them. That it wasn't to be your usual origin story like Batman, or sorry, Superman that we've seen in 1978. And that it had to be Batman versus Joker, you know, good versus evil. And, and the thing is too that I think a lot of people don't, don't realise now, John, as well, is that back in the 80s, you know, 85, 86, 87, when they were developing this, I don't believe there was any big elaborate origin 
story um, comics for Batman. If you go back to the 1930s, 1940s comics, the first 1930s comics didn't have an origin for Batman. He just appeared, and it wasn't until I think it was Batman number one in 1940 that there was an origin story, and it just explained him where he came from. But it was two panels, and it was basically, there's no big elaborate, you know, training and being in the League of Shadows and being, being a, a ninja or an assassin. It was just basically that he was a kid coming from the theatre. His parents were being mugged. This mugger shot them dead, and he decided that he would affect this brain and his body, fake brain. And what actually gave him the idea of a bat was he was sitting in a study with a window open, and he was thinking about what would scare criminals, and a bat flew, flew through the window. And he just had an idea that he would become a bat. That is absolutely fascinating and that makes the most sense in the world as to why he would do that because batman he works at night he never works in the daytime he only goes out at night he's basically nocturnal they don't really explore that in this movie but i did like that when they eventually get to batman begins that we see him waking up at like three in the afternoon because the guy has to live also the bruce wayne lifestyle which i like when they cast michael keaton in this movie that was a big deal at the time people were pissed that they cast him because michael keaton was a comedian what i think that casting bruce wayne i think why they made the smart decision at the time because other actors uh had auditioned like uh, there was rumors of kevin costner or mel gibson you know big actors at the time but what made michael keaton yeah. i think work is his bruce wayne character is that regular person the regular guy you know like he portrayed bruce wayne as not as a playboy even though he was but more like a regular person and i think that was why he's perfect casting for batman and bruce wayne going back to um the, the comic this is why i think the movie isn't big batman begins you know, they want to get to the action. They, they want to um, reflect those earlier comic books where he's already kind of established. Um, he's very kind of primitive. And you're right, the way that Tim Burton has actually um, and Michael Keaton come up with their Bruce Wayne is that he's not this playboy and he's more of this kind of outsider. And yes, to look at him, you wouldn't think he's Batman. He has to be put on the suit and he has to reject this persona onto the, the criminals and the villains as if he's some kind of supernatural kind of empathy to terrify them. Um, I mean, like Tim Burton says himself, he says, if, if he was a muscle-bound type of Arnold Schwarzenegger, type of person, why would he have to put a suit on to scare, to scare people? He could just, you know, go out into the night and just beat the living daylights out of them. And that, actually, you see that early in the movie where he gets taken down pretty early on in the movie and, I guess, and then they're like, oh, I guess he is human because they didn't know. Everybody was scared of just a big bat black bat flying around at night when we first start the film that you know it's just a rumor at this point he is early in his career but nobody realizes like that he's actually human they don't know what he is like you know we see early on like you know they don't even want anyone printing anything on about him that's why like Knox is kind of cast aside hello lieutenant Eckhart I hear we just had us another bat attack that's what eight sightings now in just under a month you know it's like come on a big black bat flying around at night we don't believe that sorry Knox these two slipped on a banana peel. That's what makes it so fascinating early in this movie is that it, it, it what is he? We don't even know early in the movie that yeah. they're the same person. And, you know, the first time you watch that. Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole thing to start your rate. It is. It's at the start of his career um, because you hear the two muggers at the start talking about Johnny Gobbs. Did you hear about Johnny Gobbs? He get get them to go walk off a roof and they're saying no is the bat but it's actually later on Knox says to Eckhart this is the fourth sighting in just under a month you know so he's only been knocking about for a month a couple of months 
terrifying these criminals. But the thing about it is, is that once he jumps down, Batman jumps down to take on the mothers, they turn around and they shoot him, and he goes down like he's been shot, killed, and they turn, and of course he gets back up again. And there you go, there's the persona he's projecting, this supernatural kind of entity that you, you can't kill. You know what I mean? He's coming for you, and you can't stop him. I'm Batman. Yeah, he's working, um, actually the Batman explored this a little bit, but what a lot of it that goes for him is the shock of seeing him. He catches them off guard, the surprise of it, the way he can disappear. You know, he throws the smoke down. Nobody yes. realizes, like, no one sees him come, nobody sees him go. He just shows up, takes them off guard. That's why, like, you know, the fight scenes in this movie aren't the greatest, mainly because of, you know, the Batsuit. But you don't need that mm -hmm. because of what he's projecting. He's projecting that fear onto them. They're just all caught off guard especially early in the movie the, the first times yeah. we see him they like even the first time jack nicholson sees him Jesus! he's like he can't believe it like <laughs> the six foot bat yeah. turning around can you imagine yeah and that's the whole thing he's it's, it's the theatrics of him yeah because even the first scene where you see him and he actually floats down uh, and it's just the theatrics of him he's got the wings out and he's down very very slowly now the, the mothers can't see him the audience can, but he's doing it for the sake of obviously the audience, but for the muggers, because if they do see him, they'll be, what the hell is that? You know, you just see the silhouette of the wings and he just slowly glides down. And it's exactly the same when he's in Axis Chemical, as you said about Jack Napier. You know, he, he's not running along the catwalk, you know, and punching people and kicking them off the edge. And, you know, he, he, he's kind of like, he's one stage you see him actually walking along the railings and flicking his cape around. So it's all this kind of illusion and theatrics. And even when he comes in with Jack Napier, now he might have had to get up high to get on that catwalk that Jack Napier was on, but he, he glides in. And even when he takes the gun out of his hand, it's the bottom of his mouth is still in shadow. You can't see him. And at first, of course, Jack Napier is, is terrified because he, and he lifts him right up because he, like you say, he can't believe what he's seeing. But he catches on pretty quickly. That's suit. Yeah, he, he really changes his tune from fear to like, like, you know, he gets the one up on him right away. He's like, nice outfit. Like, you know, that classic Jack yeah, Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, but when, but when he picks the gun up, it turns he's not there. So again, he's like, so where Jack thinks, and then he disappears. There's the supernatural element coming in. You see him kind of looking at that. Yeah. Where did he go? Did I just imagine that? Where is he? And I think that's what all works the best for this Batman is that he just comes and goes and he's in the shadows. Like, we don't know where he is. The Batmobile itself doesn't look like a car. Like, I think that all that stuff works the best for this Batman, for Michael Keaton's Batman. And really, the only origin story we get in here is the Joker, which uh, apparently I didn't find this out until way later that people were kind of offended that they did that. Uh, just because that they never really in any of the books or movies or anything after that or even before that dive into an origin story directly of origin story of the Joker is always like kind of open to interpretation in the killing joke the Dark Knight they like he tells multiple stories whether or not that's how he became yeah. this one they created Jack Napier like that was created for the movie and I always feel like to me this is the definitive uh, origin story of the Joker. Well, listen, for me, it's the de definitive origin story for, for the Joker. Maybe it's because I grew up with that. Yeah. But to be honest with you, the idea that the Joker doesn't have an origin story, that's actually the myth. And this all came about and was propagated after the Dark Knight. 
Ah. Because the Joker does have an origin story, and the Joker's origin story came out in the 1950s. Maybe it came out in the 40s, but Batman's didn't come out in the original comics till a, till a year later. The Joker had an origin story in the 50s. It was all, and then it was updated in the 80s with the Killing Joke, which came out, I think, in 1988. And that is exactly the origin story in Batman is inspired by both them origin stories. That that is the Joker's origin. So it's not until the Dark Knight came out where they created this character for that particular movie and it worked for that movie that you didn't know where he came from, you didn't know who he was, he, he, he wore makeup, he had a Chelsea smile. That is the, the myth that he never had an origin because he didn't have an origin. I like him having an origin story though, I really do. I Better be sure. I like that we know him before the Joker and after and what caused him to become the Joker. And I, I especially love it in this movie because essentially... They created each other, you know, like <laughs> you, you made me, I made yeah. you. I love that, that tie. And I've seen complaints about that, like in the sense that like the, his parents are supposed to get killed by Joe Chill. I think that's who it is in the comic yes. books. And then in Batman Begins, it's Joe Chill again. It's not supposed to be Jack Napier. It's like, it feels like it was made for the movie to have them tie into each other. I personally love that decision. I don't know how you feel about it. No, I, I love it. I've seen over the years, John, as well, is that the problem that people have with this movie is, oh, the Joker shouldn't have an origin. Why not? Makes more sense to me. The Joker comes from somewhere. Someone's bound to know him. Someone's bound to have an idea who he is. It's more fantastical that nobody knows who, who that guy is. You know, it's more fantastical to me that somebody would know or, or notice a guy big star in space. You know, how could he hate during the day? Where does he go? Where does he sleep? Someone, but what does he eat? Yeah. You know what I mean? And I know I'm being a wee bit girl, but to me, it, it makes more sense to me that the Joker should have a, an origin. The idea that he killed uh, Bruce's parents for this particular movie makes perfect sense to me. It makes sense to me that this is the reason why the Joker is Batman's parents. Nemesis. Exactly. It makes sense why they would be always be going back and forth with each other. And a little Easter egg in the morning movie, I'm sure you noticed, is like when he's when Batman gets the file on Jake Na Jack Napier, the younger picture is sitting there on the yes. left. So he could have actually solved this way earlier than he actually ends up yes. solving it, which I always thought is really funny once you notice that. Yeah, uh, and I, I noticed that um, a few years ago. Myself, when I was watching it on the Blu-ray or something, I was like, there's a young picture of Jack Napier just hidden under, you can see the top of his head, a bit of his eyes. Yep. But what I like about them being, um, you made me and I made you, it just makes it a more complete story. Mm -hmm. It makes it more self-contained. And that's what I actually like about this, this movie. It's a self-contained movie. You don't need anything outside of it. You know, it's like, for example, the Joker, the Joker dying at the end. I, that's one of the questions I wanted to ask you. That's another bit of internet controversy now. The Joker shouldn't have died. Batman doesn't kill. Why did they kill him? So how do you feel about the Joker dying again? I was fine with that. I actually didn't even know. Like, I am a huge Batman fan, but I'm not a big comic book guy, if that makes sense. So I came to Batman from the movies. Like, my first interactions with Batman were through this and the animated series. So Michael Keaton's yes. killing people. Joker's not the first character he kills in this movie. He kills other people, and he kills a lot of people in Batman Returns also. He always was killing. It wasn't until... That's another thing that the Dark Knight started, and then people started getting offended when Batman started killing in um, Batman versus Superman. But I was like... Do you guys, does anyone remember Michael Keaton? Because he was murdering people, and I had never had a problem with that. And I actually thought, seeing it, that made perfect sense for him to kill the Joker. Like you said, creates a contained movie. We get a finale to this movie. We don't have to worry about him coming yes. back in the sequel. That's it. He's dead. He solves this whole problem in one shot. You know, this is, you know, 
we we closed the loop essentially. Yeah, exactly. In Batman's defense, yes, he did um, indiscriminately kill some of his goons when he went into the chemical plant and we dropped the bomb and blew it up. Even at the parade when he started machine gunning some of his goons, either side of him, and then he did attempt to actually shoot him in the face and missed for some reason. <laughs> in regards to um, killing the Joker, I never, even though he was in the bell car and he says, yeah, I'm going to kill you, I actually don't think that when he, he touched his foot with a gargoyle, that he was intending to kill him. I agree. I think he, what he was doing was, was he was just trying to stop him from escaping. So it happened that the gargoyle ended up coming off the ledge of the cathedral and it pulls him to the, you know, pulls him off the rope ladder and he falls. So I don't think, even though he did att- attempt to kill him before that, like rolling Axe's chemicals up, like shoot, trying to shoot him in the face <laughs> um, and saying, I am going to kill you. When Joker ultimately dies, he inadvertently, Batman inadvertently kills him. I think ideally what he was trying to do was stop him from escaping. Now, let's just say he fell from the rope ladder and his foot was still attached to the gargoyle, attached to the cathedral. He would have been just left hanging there. And then that's the question. Would Batman then have just thrown him off the edge or would he have just let the police come and take him away? I don't think he would have killed him in cold blood. I think, like you said, it's more like if he gets... He's not going to feel bad about him dying, but he's not... Batman still is not the kind of character to walk up and just cold blood shoot you in the head. That's just not the kind of character he is. But he's not going to feel guilty yeah. about it. But he's also like... If he can prevent you from dying and, you know, work with the Gotham City Police Department and Gordon and everything like that, I'm sure that he's more willing to do that and assist the police yeah. than... Because he wants to be... Uh, like, yes, he's a vigilante and... You know, the police have a file on him. Like, in this movie, they're, it's still early, so they're not exactly working with him. They, You know, they see him not as crazy as the Joker, but they he would rather them perceive him as an ally than an enemy. So that's really what he would rather go for. So I'm sure he's not going to go and intentionally murder people. But if it happens, yeah. he's not going to feel guilty about it either. But you actually look at the movie as well. It's like, the first scene, he doesn't kill anybody. He's, he's actually trying to get the word out. I'm not going to kill you. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. He's trying to terrify criminals into not carrying out criminal acts. He doesn't kill any of you guys. And, and it's all hearsay about Johnny Gobbs get ripping people off a roof. Now, we're assuming that Batman threw him from the roof, but that's not necessarily so. No, he, he, he could have seen Batman could have come down and stirred and he, and he fell off the roof or he run and, you know, or jumped to get away from him. And then when he's in Axis Chemicals as well, again, he actually, um, I think he, you see him knock a gun out, back punch. Yeah. And then he actually shoots one of the goons with his grappling gun or some kind of device and hangs him from the, the ledge. Yeah, he's screaming, let me down, let me down. He's just swinging back and forth. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And then he comes walking out and Commissioner Gordon's like, oh yeah. my God. You can't believe it either. Yeah, I love that. Uh, actually, speaking of Commissioner Gordon, that's one. There's two characters in this movie that I feel like that they end up developing a lot more in future movies and even in the animated series. Yeah. And one of them is Lieutenant Gordon and Alfred. I feel like their performances yeah. in this movie are not essential to the plots, really, as uh, other movies are. I'm just going to go back first of all to saying about Axis Chemical about Jack, uh, about not killing sure, even even Jack Napier when he knocks Jack Napier off the edge of the the ledge. He try he tries to save him. Yep. And this is a point here as well, which I wanna wanna ask you. And I actually love this because it leaves it ambiguous. Did he drop Jack into the acid or did he just lose grip? 
I've always worked on the impression of he lost grip. He always looked to me like he wanted to save him and pull him back up and just turn him in. That was always how I interpreted it. I never interpreted it as him as dropping him intentionally. I think that was a complete accident. I don't. What do you think? Do you know what I actually think? And I have never seen anybody say this anywhere or Maine or anything like that. I think he dropped him on purpose. Really? And do you know why I think he dropped him? Why? Because when Jack holds on to the side of the railing, right? Batman puts his hand out. Jack takes his hand, but then Jack lets go of the railing with his other hand. Almost like he wants to pull Batman down with him. Uh... And Batman sees this and lets go. Oh, I never thought what, about it. Like Jack's that. other hand. He, Jack's got Batman's hand. Yeah. And he's got a hand on the railing. And then he pulls his arm back like that, as if he wants to pull Batman with him. And then you, you see Batman looking, and then he just lets him go. That's crazy. I never did notice that. I'm going to have to look at it a different way now. And I just watched that last night. And I'd always, same thing. I just always thought that he was, because his face, he looks like, Michael Keaton looks like he's struggling to hold his weight. And then, yeah, yeah he just falls in. Huh, I never looked and at he's it. He's struggling because he lets go of the other hand. As if yeah, it's well, almost like he doesn't want to be safe because because he doesn't want to be safe by Batman, or maybe he just doesn't want to be safe because maybe he knows the police will catch him. I don't know. Well, but, yeah. but it's almost kind of vindictive, kind of like I don't want you to save me. I, I mean, if I'm going, you're coming with me. Well, that's actually a good point I never really thought about is the Joker's in a rock and a hard place no matter what. Like Jack Napier, if he he's either going to jail or he knows that Carl Grissom set him up over a woman. So he's like, I can't go back to him, so what would his plan be? All he's got is his sets of goons who basically all just got caught anyway, so he wouldn't be in charge anymore. He would be basically on the run from everyone. So maybe he thought... Maybe he felt like either he'll die or he'll take Batman with him, like you said. Like that, that That's his only options at that point. Because if he didn't turn into the yeah. Joker, I don't think he would have had the confidence to do everything he did. Well, I mean, there's this theory that the, that the Joker is an accumulation of what's inside of Jack already. You know, when, when he becomes scarred and bleeds white with a smell and all the rest, this just brings it out of him. You know, and that's what I love about Nicholson's performance in that movie is because... To me, Jack Napier is almost a completely different character than the Joker. You know what I mean? And and um, and I think also as well, as I said about being vindictive, a vindictive character, is that he's a very vain person at the start of the movie where he says, the like, You look fine. And he, he looks at her and goes, I didn't ask. Shoulder, and he kind of goes like that, as if, no, take your hand off the shoulder, you know? Yeah, it's actually <laughs> so funny you said that. Uh-huh. So, so it's his vanity, and, and because of his disfigurement, he wants to project that onto everybody else, which is why then he starts using the gas, bring his vindictiveness and his kind of like, uh, like his uh, personality almost. He wants to reflect it onto society, like who he is. Yeah, it's deformity. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It, it, he's deformed, but he's also the most. When he becomes the Joker, you're right, though. It's like basically bringing out what was already inside of him. Like, he was always number two to Carl Grissom. And, you know, he was only going to get to number one as if he died. You know, everyone didn't see him. Even, like, the, what's his name? Lieutenant Eckhart says to him, he's like, you're nothing more than... You're an A1 nut boy. Grissom knows it. An A1 nut boy? Yeah. And he, like, Grissom runs this town. He's like, well, you know, what are you going to do when he dies? And then, you know, they pull the guns out. Better be sure. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't think but that. But you can see that flamboyancy already under the surface because he's already wearing, like, a pinky suit. 
Mm-hmm. We're sitting in the office from Grissom. Everybody else is wearing like brown suits and black and blue suits. He's in a pink suit. It's not purple. It's more like a, a dark pink. Yes. Um, with a red tie. And he's already kind of flamboyant as it is, but he's but he's a wee bit more kind of colder, wee bit more controlled, wee bit more kind of uh, calculating. Um, and I would say when he's the Joker, he's a wee, he's still very calculating and cold and dangerous, but he's he's very uh, over the top. You know, it's different. It's a different kind of uh, persona. He's essentially mad. You know what I mean? He starts off with movies he's a psychopath. But he's the Joker. He's still a psychopath, but he's but he's a manic psychopath. Yeah, he's more controlled. You're able to control him. He's more like you know he he's a psychopath, but he's still able to like he, Carl Grissom still has him under his watch. You know, he's not in charge. He's still doing somebody else's dirty work. He doesn't have that confidence, that flamboyancy to be the leader. But no, once he gets dropped in those chemicals and all that stuff bubbles to the surface. That's yeah. it. Nobody can stop him. Actually, yeah. that's it. He's taking. He's not even just trying yeah. to like take control of Carl Grissom's crime organization. He wants to take over everything. That's his ultimate goal. Is he wants to be number one in charge? Yeah. He's like that. He doesn't care about society anymore. Well, he he wants the society to reflect him. Mm-hmm. You know, he he wants he he doesn't want to fit in with society. He wants to create society so society fit him with him by deforming the paintings and things like that. Um, and deforming other people like Alicia as well when he deforms her by throwing the acid in her face. Yeah, he makes her into a living. Pe- he wants to become the world's first homicidal, fully functional artist. Fully functional homicidal <laughs> artist. That's his goal. That's actually one of my favorite scenes in the movie where he, she takes off her mask and like you know, and then the she looks. He's like, I know Picasso, but do you like it? Like, you know, do, you, like do you like it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like so proud of what he's done like he's like come on like you know you're an artist yourself like this is just new art like you should be able to appreciate it like because <laughs> he yeah. appreciates well, all like insulting our photographs crap crap yeah until yeah. he gets to death and then he's like oh you know now this that's good work <laughs> that's good work <laughs> But that always actually raises my one question because this is my biggest flaw with the entire film, actually, is uh, Gotham City. It seems like it's not a part of the rest of the world. You know, it feels like it's living mm-hmm. in its own area. Like everything, it feels like mm-hmm. everything's stuck in time except for the cars. The cars are like late 1980s yes. cars. But the everything else. All and the televisions. Yeah, the televisions are still very 1980s. But all the architecture, all the city, everything feels like it's stuck there. And then she works basically for Time Magazine taking pictures. But how does she not know who Bruce Wayne is? Vicky Vale. Bruce Wayne. And what do you do for a living? That's the one. I can never understand how she never was able to figure out who Bruce Wayne is at the beginning of the movie when you work for Time Magazine. Yeah, do you know what? I've seen people say say that we see all men, like, um, how does nobody know who Bruce Wayne is? Uh, the, only, the only thing that I can think of, because I, I'm trying to defend the movie because I really enjoy the movie and I, and I like um, Michael Keaton's Batman and things like that. And, and it's a good joke at the start of the movie where she's kind of like, asking Michael King, do you know which one of these guys is Bruce Wayne? And he's like, well, I'm not sure, which is a funny joke. Mm-hmm. I mean, who is Bruce Wayne? I mean, in essence, Bruce Wayne doesn't exist anymore. It's Batman that exists. You know, Bruce Wayne is, is the cover. You know, he, he's Bruce Wayne is the disguise. Batman yep. is the real person. The only thing I can think of is that, I mean, in the comics, and I know a lot of people, especially back then, had made the comics, he, le- he left Gotham for like 10 years and trained and perfected his body and 
got all these martial arts. So he was away for 10 years. And the only thing I can think of is that over the time he's been away and came back again, I mean, he's Batman. He's probably broke into Gotham and uh, Globe and stole anything that uh, anybody, any information they had on him. When she went in the spade and she was like, um, who is this guy? You know, there's no pictures, there's no photos, there's no nothing. Who is he? And Max is kind of like, who cares? Because he's kind of like a recluse. Yeah. He's not out there in the news every day. He's not out there and like socializing with all these socialites or whatever and having different women hanging off his arm and Gotham Globe taking loads of photographs of him and things like that. He wants to stay hidden. He wants to be in the shadows. He doesn't want people to know his business. He wants to stay low key. And some people may find that odd, odd in themselves. But when you look at Michael Keaton, you don't think he's the type of guy that's um, going to go out and put on a suit and beat up criminals. But at the same time, too, when you find out he is Batman, it does kind of make sense that somebody like him would put on a suit and would go out and fight criminals. I mean, he's got the means to do it. That's for sure. He's got the money. He's like you said. He's a recluse. He's a recluse, so like people aren't out in the city. Like when he goes to Gotham later in the city, like people aren't like running up. Like, oh, that's Bruce Wayne. So he's definitely not as popular. Like he, he seems like more like a a regular rich person. But Wayne Enterprises yeah. does still exist, and Wayne, you know, all that stuff. But he does just kind of blend in because how many billionaires do you actually know off the top of your head? So it's like. If he's just a regular billionaire, many people probably wouldn't know who he looks like. There's, he's not like the playboy where he's front page news like he would be in the Dark Knight franchise. But again, it is different times because even though the film was made in the 80s, it, you're right. They created a world where you can't just kind of pinpoint exactly what era it is. You know, different times back then, John, you know, television, you only had so many channels. Yes. And if you wanted to learn the news, you had to watch the news at every time. There was no 24-hour news channel. There was no smartphones. There was no internet. You know, there's people weren't always glued to their phones and reading stories about, take, for example, Elon Musk or whatever, very high-profile, what is he, a billionaire, or is he a trillionaire? I don't know, but he's very high-profile. People are writing stories about him all the time. And, um, but back then, it was different. If you, you had a newspaper, you maybe read the newspaper during the day. And you didn't even read every story. You just maybe flipped through it and picked out a story that you read the rest of it. You know, it wasn't constant. This type of information wasn't constantly being put in your face. So I can kind of understand how maybe a guy who is a millionaire or a billionaire, uh, if he wants to fly under the radar, he can fly under the radar. I can, I can understand that. Yeah, and really that's my only flaw that I've ever had with the movie. I always just bumped into that one thing, how she just couldn't realize who Bruce Wayne was. But, you know, it's a, it's really a minor complaint in the overall thing. Yeah, I, I have seen complaints from other people about Kim Basinger, which I never understood, because I actually think she does a really good job in this movie. And she was a last-minute replacement, actually. Sean Young was supposed to originally be her... Yes. But she got hurt in a horse riding accident and Kim Basinger was available. And that's really how she got the job. And I personally, maybe it's because I've just seen this movie so much. I can't see anyone else but her in that role. And it's probably yeah. my favorite time with Kim Basinger in any film. Yeah. This, uh, this goes back to what you asked me earlier about Mr. Gordon and Alfred. My understanding is that like, this is a reflection of the 1940s comics. Commissioner Gordon was an older man. And he wasn't like your Jim Gordon to see in the Dark Knight uh, or Batman Begins or anything like that. He wasn't a younger, kind of ambitious type of policeman who then gets promoted into commissioner. And, you know, he's there with walking alongside Batman to bring down the mob and Gotham and all this. And, you know, I don't want to turn this into like a noted versus Burton type of thing. I just prefer to just talk about 
the first Batman movie because I love the movie. It's my favourite Batman movie. But at the same time too, sometimes I struggle to see why Christian Bale had to be Batman in the movies. Because if he was a detective, which he could have been, you know, he could have been more effective. If he was a DA, which he could have been, and those films tell us that um, the DA was more effective than Batman, he could have been. I mean, he didn't have to put a suit on and go ahead and start beating people up. But in this movie, it's like they needed a Batman. Oh, yeah. The police force was depleted. The police force couldn't deal with the crime. Uh, Commissioner Gordon was ineffective as well because of the crime and because of the police force. And as I say, back then, in those early comics, Commissioner Gordon was only a bit flary. He wasn't a very complicated character. And he wasn't aligned with Batman like like Commissioner Gordon was in later years in, in the comics. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I think that back then as well, blockbusters that were coming out, the, the stories and the, and the plots, they're a lot more streamlined about the art of day. You know, there, there were blockbuster movies that didn't have to be elaborate. It was good versus evil, and that was it. And good always overcame the evil. Now, um, I think that if there's any flaws in this movie, which there is, there's flaws, but one of the biggest flaws is, is the plot, because the plot isn't amazing. I mean, it's, it's not anything special. But it didn't have to be. No. Because, because it, it, it's just, it just was a summer blockbuster meant to be easy for people to follow and understand. And I, I just think that's a reflection of the times. And I also think what's a reflection of the times is how uh, Batman killed people and the fact that the villain died at the end. But another reason why the villain died at the end was because in Batman number one, the Joker died. I didn't actually know that. Yeah, and it was only the original story died, and then they brought it to the to the editor, and the editor asked him to add another panel that he survived because he said they said that he was such a great character that he should come back again. And what actually happened was was that the Joker tries to stab Batman, and uh, a struggle ensues. The Joker stabs himself and falls over the ledge of a building. And he's lying dead. And even uh, Robin is with Batman. And Robin says to Batman, look, he's even smiling in death. So he is lying with a spade on his face dead. And um, the next thing is that when the paramedics take him away, his body disappears. And that became a reoccurring thing. That, you know, the Joker, you would think he was dead and he would come back. And that is why a lot of people maybe thought that the Joker could come back in a sequel to, Bat- to Batman at some stage. But obviously even down the route of printing in different villains. So I say I think some of the things about Batman in the eighties does reflect the times um, of action movies. I, I completely agree, actually, that with everything you just said, that like it does illustrate the times of how you know we close the loop. But you, they could have brought him back because in this movie, he dies. They at least he says that he dies because he's like I've been dead before. It's very liberating. <laughs> like he pretty yeah. much died in that, and then he was brought back to life, which. I love the scene where he's like getting the surgery, even that doc, that back alley doctor, like doing. I love that scene. I don't know how. I mean, I wouldn't obviously. I think that's an illustration of how Gotham City is supposed to be. All these shady yeah. characters living in this world. You know, this doctor's what's he just doing work on people like on criminals who can't go to a real hospital? And he's like, "You see what I have to work with here." <laughs> and, you know, hey, he's, hey, baby, I, you see what I have to work with here. Yeah, it's just a swinging light, and he just just he destroys his one light bulb and his mirror and everything. Yeah, <laughs> I love that scene because. Uh, Oh, the design of that set is amazing to me. Yeah, exactly. I love that scene as well. I mean, like, mm-hmm. what an introduction to the Joker. People think it's when he comes out of the shadows to shoot Grissom. But that's the introduction to the Joker. And when he says, like, Murrah, 
Yeah. And then when he, he looks at it, he starts crying and then laughing. That the nerves were completely severed, Mr. Napier. <laughs> and then smashes the mirror. Mm. And even just seeing those instruments there, that, that that doctor was working on his face. You know, Tim Burton, very influenced by the Universal Monsters and, and then things like that. You know, it's, it's just littered throughout this movie, that kind of, what is it, German expressionism? You know, that yeah, kind of German. Movie. Yeah, that, that gothic kind of look that he likes to go for. You know, almost hammer horror inspired yeah. in ways too. Exactly, and then so ba- Batman is very, um, is very kind of inspired, especially in the start when he is more of a creature of the night, and in the Joker as well. And one of the things that I love about the Joker, if you, if you ever look out for it, when they climb up the cathedral at the end, just before him and Vicky go into the bell tower, it's like a long shot, and you see the bell, the bell kind of swaying very slowly. And I think she's in front of him. And Jack Nicholson's is behind her, and he's kind of going like this. Looking <laughs> <laughs> for as if it's like, ooh, you know, get up, it's scary, isn't it? Yeah, I, and that's another so, great um, set. Yeah, it's brilliant. But but that's that's only you're talking about the set, and that's one of the things I've been thinking about, which makes this film endure a great movie. This this is what to me what makes this movie great, and it's not so much the storyline. The acting is brilliant. Then. Um, I think Nicholson obviously does a great job. Keaton does an amazing job as well as Batman, even though, as you say, people didn't want him to do it. You know, and then you have um, Kim Bassinger in there. And that, I think that's what I was talking about, a reflection of the time. She's more like the damsel in distress, you know, and, and this yeah. day and age, you know, people don't want to see that. But I was predominant in the Indians, and it was even more so predominant in the comics in the 40s. So again, it's reflecting the early comics. But what makes this film endure to me, John, is the sad design. It's the atmosphere. It's the bad suit. It's the Joker's outfit. You know, it's the whole look of the film. It's the whole feel of the film. It's the sound of the film. It's the soundtrack. That is what makes this film, to me, a classic. It's not that it's a big elaborate plot like Heat or anything like that, or The Godfather. It's the look of it. And and I'll I'll tell you why as well. It influenced so much which happened after that. It, it created the animated series. Yep. It, it's it basically birthed the modern superhero movie. It, it also brought in that dark, serious role. Even though looking back at it now, it can be very kind of. Uh, I, I, I hate to say the used word camp because I don't think it's camp. It's just there's comedic parts in it, and people think, "Oh, that's that's camp." You know what I mean? But if you if you look at movies that came out after that, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles came out in 1990. I mean, they, they, that dark tone and that movie they took directly from Batman, right? Then then you had the likes of The Crow and you had Dick Tracy. Oh, yeah, Dick Tracy's um, a lot. Coming out. And then you, even you had The Mask in, in, in uh, 1984. Spoken! Again, that had this kind of dark tone to it. To me, that's all attributed to, to Batman coming out in 1989. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. All that stuff is definitely a huge influence on future films. I mean, this movie is... I look, I've always said, I don't remember what you said, I know we've talked about this before, but I believe that this is where movie, uh, superhero movies took the turn, where they started to become mainstream. We did kind of miss it a little bit in the late 90s, but uh, this is kind of where it was. Like, people will maybe say Superman, but I feel like this is more of where the modern superhero films kind of came into play, where a lot of the tropes that we even have today, they all kind of started here, and like what other movies, but uh, obviously... Dick Tracy, I think, is a big one, actually, especially with set design. Uh, but the set design in this movie is absolutely incredible. It's one of my... It's honestly that and the Danny Elfman score is really... That's what 
brings yes. me back for these movies is the Elfman score works so well with this. It clearly inspired the animated series, but the set design that they built this set in Pinewood Studios, they built this whole thing. This is a real living city. You only see it at night. Uh, the, any day shots, it's cloudy out. It's overcast. You're just leaning right into the style of what this movie is. The bat suit is that thick black rubber. I mean, the mm -hmm. only thing that has color in this movie is the Joker. That's what makes him stand yeah. out as this very eye-popping thing. He's wearing always his hair. is the greenest Joker hair up until we get to Jared Leto. You know, like, he he's still wearing nice suits. He just kind of, like you said earlier, he just started leaning into what his style already was. It all just comes bubbling up. Like, he gets more and more like, yeah, he just wore that dark pink suit. But now he's got the hat. He's got the freaking, the green now incorporated in everything. You know, it just all works now. And that's all part of the production design. And I just love the production yeah. design of this movie. That's really, for me... That's what makes this stand above the rest. This is personally my favorite yes. movie when it comes to set design. Yeah, I, that um, set they built a Penguin is unbelievable. It's, it's amazing. And I, I think we talked about it before that I haven't seen anything before that. And I never haven't seen anything since that even comes close to it in relation to a uh, any, any type of movie. And, and to me, that's what makes this, as you say, stand out. That, that's what makes it classic to me. And that's what makes it actually endure. And as you said about the, the Joker, he stands out even more then because he's wearing these flamboyant purple suits with the blues and the green suit. And even the orange his shirt as well makes it stand out even more with the blue tie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, all, that, all that's brilliant. That, that, that's to me why I keep re revisiting it. It's just fun. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be... It's not overly serious either. It's, it's serious to a, to a point, and it's just fun to watch. Yeah, and as you say, sorry about the production design as well. When you look at the legs of that bat movie, to that day, people will tell you that that's their favorite bat movie. 30 odd years later. Oh, yeah, 100%. That is definitely the best Batmobile we've ever gotten. And the Tumblr, I mean, is nice and everything, but this one is by far the best. And I think it's just built on a Chevy Impala body, which I, I don't see it at all. But, you know, I only the only thing that always stands out with the Batmobile where I could tell it's a real car is the hole in the seat, the head cushions always stick out to me. I don't know if you've ever noticed right, that okay. because um, uh, I've been my parents have had cars like that with that headrest. And I'm like, oh, it always stands out as being I can tell now that they built that of a Chevy Impala body. But that is still the most iconic Batmobile. No Batmobile has ever even come close to that. It, it's it's incredible. I actually think that um, they had two of them. And oh. one was built on the Chevy and one was built on a different car. I, there's not that big on cars. I don't know do much about cars. But I remember there's a documentary actually on the Dark Knight Rises Blu-ray and it just talks about the Batman's just about the Batmobiles. They actually said that uh, the guys that actually built it, they were British, because they, obviously they filmed in Britain. I think the the, the, the lights came from a a, a, Pe a Peugeot. One of the guys says he was looking for the right lights and he's, his wife had a Peugeot and he seen the, the shape of them and went, they would fit the front of the Batmobile. So he actually painted them yellow and put them in the front. And he, I think he said the back lights are from the Porsche. Okay. Back lights, the round, the round ones, the red round ones. And I he said he that. was driving through London one day and there was a London bus sitting and he seen the, 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 the petrol tank, you know, the gas, the gas. Oh. The, 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 the Americans call it gas. We call it petrol over here. Oh, okay. That's <laughs> funny. <laughs> so he, he, and I didn't want to say gas tank. So I was thinking, I'm talking about gas tanks now. I'm talking about Jaws again. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it was the it was the petrol cap for the bus. Uh, and he thought that would suit the Bible base. So he went and got one of them. So it's a London bus petrol cap 
where they put the puzzle in. That but is the funny, funny thing was they said that uh, when the sculptor, Tim Burton, came in and said, where's the door? And they realized they hadn't put a door in the car. So they come up with this idea that the top would slide down and he would get in like a cockpit or like a plane. But the thing was, was that when he get in with a suit, his ears were too big. So when it closed, it closed on his ears. So for the scenes where he's actually in the car, they had to make a specific curl where the ears were like a quarter shorter or, or three quarters shorter than, than a normal bat suit. Uh, that's funny. That explains why you never see the top of it, or at least you don't notice it as much. That uh, That's funny. One thing I wanted to bring up to you, because this gets a lot of controversy on the internet, and it, they make sure they bring it up in Batman Returns. Uh, how do you feel about Vicky seeing the Batcave? Now, this never bothered me, because I saw this like such from such a young age, so I didn't, you know, you're a little yeah. bit older than me, so maybe this is something that stood out to you. But for me, it was no big deal. Yeah, no, I agree. It's no, it's no big deal. Um, it's really weird, like because it could be just because, like you, like I watched this movie when I was like eight. So I mean, I've been watching it ever since I've yeah, asked in the last podcast that I watched Jaws once a year since I first seen it. Probably not. I may have seen Batman once a year since I first seen it when I was eight. Maybe it's because I've seen it that age. A lot of this stuff doesn't bother me because to me, it's just it's almost like a stage play. It's just very much a closed loop of a movie like i i don't know i'm sure that they had plans to make sequels and make money you know they had tie-ins and everything like that and then once we get to batman returns you know they wanted to go more kid-friendly and that's how we end up with batman forever and batman and robin but i don't know if that was their plans originally out of the gate if they were just trying to make a franchise because this movie is very much a one-off movie it feels like like that's it like we told our story and we're out so in this movie it does make sense for vicky to find out who bruce wayne batman is because we're also following their storyline of her how she cares about bruce and yes. how he does she gets upset about him lying about what he's doing and she doesn't understand why he's like that because she generally just cares about Bruce Wayne the person. She doesn't even yeah. see Batman and Bruce Wayne as the same. So when she does find out, it makes all the sense in the world in this movie. Well, but this is my thought. Because that's what I was going to say. Because it's not until the internet comes along. It's like when we've done the pod last week about Jaws 2. It's like you go on you go on the online and then you start seeing people hate, hating on these older movies, ripping them apart and picking holes in them. Now I'm sure you could sit and pick holes in a lot of movies. We probably pick holes in The Godfather. But people don't do it because, you know, it's a much-loved movie. So a lot of that stuff, it kind of got me thinking about, is there a reasonable explanation? And sometimes people will just pick holes for the sake of picking holes. And the thing is, nowadays, like, I just feel as if audiences want to be spoon-fed every single little detail. Especially when I watch the likes of, like, the Nolan trilogy. You know, that, that he has to explain every wee tiny wee detail, even down to the point of, oh, can you turn your head? And to me, that was a big at the the Burton movies. It was. I didn't like that because <laughs> I love the Burton movies. Yeah, at the end of the me. day, <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, they made the suit the way they made the suit. I understand that he doesn't move. He doesn't move his head, but it's a movie. Uh, it's a fantasy movie. It it created the Batman turn, you know. Exactly. Especially when he's seen the helicopter and he's like that. Yeah. You know? So it gives us a lot of good things. So when I see complaints like. Why did uh, Alfred that Vicky into the Batcave? And as a matter of fact, I'm, a, I'm actually maybe being a bit unfair here because I did hear that people complained about this in the early 90s, like really like uh, Batman uh, comic book fans. Oh, people were pissed. They That's the reason why it's referenced in Batman Returns when he says, yes. who let Vicky into the Batcave? The reason why that's even only yeah. put in the script is to appease those fans who were mad. And, like, this is something, yeah. obviously, just because of my age, I wouldn't find out till down the line that people were mad. 
You know, really yeah. when I started finding all this stuff out was uh, before The Dark Knight came out. As I started doing my research yeah. on Batman and Batman's history. So I did a deep dive into, you know, one of my favorite movies ever, Batman. And I was just reading about how people perceived it at the time. And I, I mean, people were mad, <laughs> which really surprised yeah. me. I, I didn't know how much people were into the comics and that that would be like a betrayal to them almost. The, the reason I was saying about that, I, I actually just started looking, looking and getting, thinking about it, you know, about is there a reason reason behind this and people need to be spoon-fed? Is because before she goes into the Batcave, she already knows she's Batman. She has already worked it out. And that is why. Because and the penny drops when, well, first of all, Bruce Wilson and Vincent Serpent tell her that he's Batman. Okay? Classic scene. And yet, it's... Now you want to get nuts? Come on. Let's get nuts. Brilliant scene. You yeah. want to get nuts? Yeah. Come on. I love that. That's just my, that's when we get to see Michael Keaton, like be Michael Keaton. I feel like he has in every single one of his movie contracts that he has to have a scene where he just loses it for a second or two because he did another movie. I believe it was 93, uh, my life really sad, but there's a scene in that movie that is so out of place. It's just Michael Keaton doing that Michael Keaton thing where he just like gets his voice high pitched and I'm like, doesn't fit here, <laughs> but in this movie it works perfect. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's, and I, I'm near certain that he he asked asked to put that in the movie about him going saying, "Do you want to get nuts?" He actually asked to do that. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> it. It feels like a Michael Keaton thing. Like, come on, I got to do this once. I'm very down and dour throughout the entire movie. Let me be <laughs> Michael Keaton for a second. <laughs> well, why is Jack always get to be nuts? Can I not be nuts too? Yeah. <laughs> They're like, well, that's Jack Nicholson, and he's the Joker, so it makes sense. Never rub another man's rhubarb. But it's like, but I'm Michael Keaton. I'm known for doing stuff like that, too. You ever seen Mr. Mom? Did, <laughs> did you ever hear the story that Keaton tells about he was going to work out for the movie and get a wee bit more buff? I haven't did heard that. Did you ever that. hear this story? No. <laughs> he, he was on a talk show a couple of years ago, and he says that um, he actually was working out in his dressing room. I think he had weights and all put out there. And he was working out. He says he felt like he wanted to build himself a wee bit to be Batman. And he says this was during filming. And he says one day, he says when he was working out, Jack Nicholson come walking past and stopped, just looked at him, and he stopped and looked at him. And Jack Nicholson says, "What are you doing?" And Michael Keaton says, "Yeah, I'm working out." And Jack Nicholson says, "Why?" <laughs> and Keaton says. I don't know. <laughs> and he says, Nicholson just looked at him and then just turned and walked on. Oh, man. And he says, after that, he stopped. He stopped working out. I love Michael. I love their their relationship. Actually, I have a really funny story that Michael Keaton told about Jack Nicholson. Also, you know how Jack Nicholson loves sports, right? And, you know, he actually had in his contract that he got off for all the home Laker games. I guess he'd fly back to L.A. for the Laker games because he's just that big of a Lakers fan. But he loves sports in general. And Michael Keaton was saying, you know, he's in the chair getting his makeup done. Jack Nicholson walks in. Morning, Keats. And he would call him Keats. And he'd be like, and, you know, there was only British sports being played in Britain at the time. You couldn't get the basketball games or anything like that. So he, the only thing that was on was darts. And he said yeah. that Michael Keaton and him would... Uh, they would always talk, and he gets gets in the chair, Michael Keaton, and he turns to him and says, "Damn good darts tournament last night." <laughs> <laughs> That's I, I actually heard that, and that made me laugh so much because I understand where he's coming from. My my dad is big in the darts. My dad played darts for years. Oh, really? Um, yeah, yeah, he plays darts, and my my brothers play darts. 
And they all play for a local club, although my dad's retired now. I doesn't play anymore. They would have the World Championships in and around December, January time over, oh. over Christmas. It was, I think it would start just after Christmas, stop for New Year's, and in, and in the final, it was like on New Year's Day or the day after New Year's Day. So when I heard this story, I had to look up who it was was in the final because I had no doubt my dad was probably watching that. Yeah, because they filmed this from October 88 to January 89. So it would have been like you just said, the final, which I never, I, this is the first I ever heard about this. I, I mean, I just thought that, yeah. you know, like, oh, okay, it's a sport that's big over there, but I didn't know it was like that big. That's crazy. You just, oh, because that's one of the videos, like, I have saved in my, like, uh, watch later on YouTube forever. I've had it for yeah. years because I just, I love that story of Michael Keaton just talking about Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, I was laughing when I heard it because I get a, I get a watching Jack Nicholson watching the darts. Like, it's just, it's ridiculous like you know what I mean especially back then because the darts was a lot different than what it is now it's, it's very uh, commercialized now and there's I've been in a few darts games in England like you know it, it's like a party everybody's blocking or drinking and that walk on guards and brings the darts players on and they come into like theme music and all and it's they put on a big show but that particular one back then it was a wee bit more reserved it was very quiet it was you know, nobody made any noise and you weren't allowed to shout out or anything, you know, to put the dark players off or anything like that. But I was just laughing myself, imagining Jack Nicholson, uh, you know, sitting in his hotel room watching this darts, darts tournament. <laughs> yeah, I, it made me laugh too because, uh, I mean, not like my father in general, he doesn't watch darts or play darts, but... My dad loves sports, and if there's nothing on, he'll put on. It doesn't matter what the sport is. Just like with Jack Nicholson, like I'll watch anything. Watch anything. My dad is one of the only people I know who like he'll be surfing the channels, and if there's nothing on, on, he'll start watching like women's college softball. Like, and I'm just like I've never seen anyone else in my life watch that. But my father will. If this, he's like I had to watch some kind of sport. Like he's not a movie guy, but when it comes to sports. Any sport, he'll just watch that. He, I guess, he likes the competition, yeah. and Jack Nicholson must be the same way. <laughs> yeah. He committed that morning trying to make a, a conversation, you know. Yeah. Darts tournament last night, and, and Keaton's just like, "What?" Yeah, like what? Like I don't, darts? Like what do you think? <laughs> Needs something to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting the, the makeup on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, he, Jack Nicholson, is one of the actors. I just love hearing behind the scenes stories about. It yeah. just seems like one of the funniest, coolest guys, and everyone's got a story about him. I've heard a story from yeah. Robin Williams, like when he won his third Academy Award. He's like, he's like, hey, Robin. He's like, now I got one for each decade that I've worked. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, apparently he told Keaton as well when they were making Batman. He says, if this is a, a big hit, don't worry. You can make three or four flops and you'll still be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, uh, the, but, the guy's mind is just like, he's always into like, just like, he's always doing what's, uh, he just always seems like he's having fun. But I mean, he's also clearly yeah. a genius because on this movie, yes. he lowered his salary to six million and took residuals yes. on everything. And they think they estimated he ended up making over $90 million on this movie. Like, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was a, he was a, he's a smart guy. Listen, he's a serious guy too. And that's the thing that people watch Jack Nicholson. Like, that's another thing that, that I've heard is that, oh, Nicholson's just playing Nicholson. I don't think so. I mean, people would say that a woman's seen movies like Shani and Batman. I mean, go back and watch. I mean, recently you watched the last detail. What a performance. You know, Chinatown um, films like five easy pieces. Um, Love five okay, easy pieces. He plays a crazy person. But, well, actually, he doesn't play a crazy person in Cuckoo's Nest. He's pretending to be crazy. Yeah, he doesn't actually. He's not crazy at all in Cuckoo's Nest. He's just... Thinks he's no. just trying to get by. He wants to get. He wants the easiest route. He doesn't want to be in a prison camp, so he thinks yeah. that he'll take advantage of that system. 
That's all he's trying to do is take advantage yeah, of the system. Yeah, and he's trying to wind Ratzon up because he think because he say, he thinks I don't know. He says he takes a bad bad tag and winds her up, and but little does he know that she has to sign him out. He thinks that if you finish his time, he gets out, and then when he finds out that she has to sign him out, he's, he's really annoyed and blames the, the other inmates. You didn't tell me, and they're like, we didn't tell you what <laughs> we thought you knew. Yeah, some of them. He finds out that like some of them are in there voluntarily. He's like, yeah, I could just leave, and he's like, what? <laughs> he's like, <laughs> I can't believe it. He's like, what? You can leave it if you want. And you're, you're in here, you should be out there. He says, bang and pussy, doesn't that what he says? Yeah, well, that's all he's into because he's a, he's a womanizer and everything like that. So he's like, you can, you're choosing to stay in here and listen to all this bullshit when you could be out doing what I want to do right now? Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, but that's what I'm saying. He was a, he's a serious actor, and that was the whole thing, was that people, on reflection, people would look back and go, Jack Nicholson was the Joker and Batman, we made X amount of pounds, but... That wasn't a Jack Nicholson movie. Jack Nicholson didn't do movies like Batman. That no. was that was a coup that they got him. He took a, he took a salary cut. Yeah. But he knew he was going to get a percentage of, of the profit. So he had a good sense that this movie was going to do well. But that was the whole thing. I mean, you look back, I've seen things online as well. John, people turn in and say that um, John Lithgow was considered for the Joker. Wouldn't he have been a great Joker? And I'm kind of going, mm, but the movie still wouldn't have done as well because Jack Nicholson was an absolute top movie star and, and the fact that this movie made over 400 million dollars were made to me is because of Jack Nicholson right? along with other things but he was the main draw of the time in my opinion apart from the IP of Batman but that was more getting geeks into the seats but the, the ordinary everyday viewer like I, I remember like my mum and dad went and stood and watched Batman and landing my VHS to my um, great auntie and uncle watch. they would never watch that movie if it wasn't for people like Jack Nicholson and um, and then you hear stories on then that, you know, oh, Willem Dafoe was maybe considered for the Joker. But the bottom line was, was that Jack Nicholson was always first choice for the Joker. They yes. just thought that they wouldn't get him. And that's the reason why they maybe had these other actors maybe lined up. Thankfully, Jack said yes. And I think part of the reason that Jack said yes was because of the producers, because he had worked with Emmons on The Witches of Eastwick. Yes. And also when he met Ken Burton, he liked Beetlejuice. And he liked the vision. He liked the idea of where the movie was going. So, so those were the people who sold it to him. So if it was a different director, he made the grand Did you ever hear the story about how Jack Nicholson and Tim Burton met? The horse race, maybe? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that. Basically took yeah. him. Tim Burton never rode a horse before and all that stuff. I think that's yeah. hysterical. Because I can you, I Tim Burton just doesn't look like the kind of guy who would ever ride a horse. <laughs> but Tim Burton tells a story. I think it was... Uh, I get mixed up with these two producers. Was it Peter Guber says to him, we're going to go and see Jack. Um, he's horse riding in Aspen or something. And he says that, that Burton, do you ride horses? And uh, Burton says, no. And he says, you do today. <laughs> and um, I think Burton said that there's this photograph or whatever it was Peter Guber said, there's this brilliant photograph of Jack and Burton both on their horses. I would love to see that photo. I've never seen it. I've never seen it too, and I wish I did. I mean, you sent me a photo that I that blew my mind, which is the opening credits. You know how they just obviously shot the opening credits of it and this big Batman logo, and then you sent me a picture of a guy, I guess, sneaking onto the Pinewood Studio set, and it's not that big at yeah. all. I mean, that's just a great miniature, but it's just that to me that was a picture that blew my mind, and just in general. But I would love to see the picture of Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I just want to see Tim Burton on a horse. Jack Nicholson, I can imagine, but Tim Burton, <laughs> just the way I've always seen Tim Burton with that crazy frizzy hair, I 
Doesn't look like someone sitting on a horse to me. Yeah, yeah, probably terrified. Jack sitting there with a big grin, and uh, Tim Burton sitting terrified on the horse because he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, and Jack probably gets a kick out of it because Jack's very yeah, self-aware. Probably, Jack probably knew Fane Ridley. He's probably waking him up. But yeah. um, you know, I, you know what I would love. I have a series of books here, like um, the Visual History EP, um, Close Encounters. Um, what other ones is there? I really, really want them to do a Visual History of Tim Burton's Papa. Even if they don't Batman and Batman Returns, I really want a visual history of them two movies. Maybe the first one, because see the behind-the-scenes photographs of that movie, I can't get enough of them. Like you saying, the sets, the actual costumes, all of it's beautiful to me. I just really, really love it. Yeah, there's not enough behind the scenes on this movie, which is mind-blowing to me because it was so popular at the time. Um, the behind-the-scenes stuff that we have, the stuff that came out, that's still getting produced, I think came out on the original DVD release, and that's still what yeah. they're recycling. I'm very yeah. surprised that they haven't done a new making-of documentary for this because, A, it's one of the most famous making-ofs as far as films go because everything that led up to it is very fascinating. Everything what, what the creation of it is fascinating. And then its legacy is so impactful. I, I'm yeah. very surprised there aren't more books or documentaries made about this movie. I, I'm very, I've always been very confused about that. Why what we have is all we've ever had for that. You know, like this is kind of up there with like behind the scenes stuff as far as movies like Blade Runner and Apocalypse Now that have full blown documentaries, like three hours made about their making of. I don't get why Batman mm -hmm. seems to not fall into that category. It's so much in there. Yeah, I, exactly, and I agree. Yeah, I love that doc the documentary they produced for the DVD in 2005. It is outstanding, especially for the pain. It is. I really would like some kind of up updated stuff. And I, the, one of the biggest things I was actually surprised of was Jack Vincent was interviewed for that because he doesn't do interviews. No, never. I couldn't believe it. They actually got him. I didn't expect him to be or not. I remember when that was advertised. I went down on day one and, and bought it. I booked a day off work. So I saw that I am. <laughs> I'm going down and buying Batman, Batman Returns and Batman Forever, special days and DVDs and coming back and watching them. And I came back and I, just, I didn't put the movie on first. I put the making of on all those documentaries and sat and watched them all afternoon. And I wasn't expecting Nicholson to be in it because he doesn't do interviews. And when he come on, I actually couldn't believe it. And this is, so that's an outstanding making of. But it, you're right, I would make more of a modern kind of uh, making of or retrospective. Even done on this day of like, I mean, we have got things like Never Sleep Again and things like that. And I, I would like something done like that. I mean, they just came out with a documentary that's about the making of the 1998 series. What's the matter? Which is, you know, yes, popular. Have. You have the documentary? Have you yeah, watched I have that? The documentary, yeah. Have you watched that yet? I haven't watched it yet. I watched it. I yes, I did watch it. Is it good? Because I want to watch it. <laughs> it's worth a watch if you're a fan. I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was amazing. Okay. But then again, maybe I'm spoiled because of Never Sleep Again and uh Crystal Lake Memories, which are outstanding um documentaries. Uh, I just thought it was okay. Alright, because I, I, that's one I was going to buy. Right now, I could watch it for free on Amazon Prime, but like that was because I'm a big fan of the 1998 miniseries. I would want something done like that where it gets a feature release as far as looking yes. back on it, because there's so much there that you can honestly make yeah. a three-hour documentary about this movie. I do love that making of documentary, though, the one like you were talking about from the 05 DVD. It is great. I have a question for you. Do you prefer to watch the making ofs before the movies or after? After. After, so do I. I think it does add to the movie a lot. To me. That's why I, I get so upset when movies don't include extras like that because 
yeah. it really does help the movie, in my opinion. The only reason I actually put them making up song that day when I bought it back in 2005 was because, I mean, I've seen, I'd seen the movie a million times and I was so excited to kind of see the making of this movie because, John, we were talking about a time back then where it was like, in the 90s, you bought a VHS. It was just the movie. It's I think it. I was saying in last week's pod, if I wanted to learn about the making of a movie or like the likes of Jaws or whatever, you know, I had to maybe, there was no like making of books really. Uh, there was a, a making of book um, called The Jaws Dog. And I was out of print. It came out in the 70s. Um, that was out of print. I couldn't get that. So if I wanted to learn about Jaws, I was like, I was reading Spielberg biographies because that's the only place I could get information. So when DVDs came along and Jaws had a, a, bar, a big making of documentary um, on the DVD. It was actually for the Laserdisc, which came out in the mid-90s, but it was then tra- transported over to the DVD. So that, that was an amazing making-off. So when Batman was um, advertised, and it was going to have a making-off, there's me thinking, oh, it's going to be like the Jaws one. And it was, it was very, it is very good. I recommend it. So I'd seen the movie so many times, I just was like, I was so excited just to see how it was made, because I hadn't really seen any behind-the-scenes making of it all about that movie up to that point. I remember it came out in widescreen in VHS in the late 90s, and it had the trailer at the start of the of the movie, the original trailer. And even just seeing that was amazing, just seeing that original trailer. You know, nowadays we can go on our phones and we can go on YouTube, and you can watch making ofs and you can watch trailers and all the rest of it, which reminds me, um, there was a making of that was on British TV. I didn't see it at the time. It's called The Making of a Hero. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't heard of that. Is it available on YouTube? Yes. I I, I recommend you watch it. it. It's really good about the making of Batman. And that has a lot of behind-the-scenes footage. That isn't even... Some of the, that they took and put on the, the, the DVD making of. But that has a lot more behind-the-scenes making of stuff because it was filmed at the time. Ah, uh, yeah. See, that stuff... I, that, I'm surprised that they didn't really start doing that. They did have, like, making-ofs that would show up on TV. Like, there's a really good one for The Terminator that they aired on TV. It's, like, 20-something minutes. I guess they used to just release these in half-hour blocks, like, as advertisement. Uh, The Superman Blu-rays, the 4Ks that just came out this year, had these making-of documentaries that would be released on TV that were narrated by Christopher Reeve. And those feel more promotional because, like... They don't dive into, like, conflicts or anything on set. Everything went rosy. Yeah, Every, everyone loved working on those movies when those documentaries are made. But you do get some footage, which is always cool to see. But I'm going to have to yeah. check out the one that you're talking about. And you're right. People do not realize how spoiled we are today where you can look it up because that's it. When a VHS came out, you got the VHS and it was just the movie. You got, got that, was some, it. that was it. You got some trailers for other movies in the front of it and maybe a pop secret mm-hmm. ad. And that was it. And what you're saying about the promotional stuff, funny enough, yes, I know what you're talking about because the next of like, when I got the Robocop um, DVD, that had the 1987 feature, which was like seven minutes long. But then they also had a making of a matter of, well, an up to date that came out from the, I don't know, that came out the early 2000s or whatever. So that had an up to date making of documentary, but it also had the 1987 feature. And you're right, it's more promotional because I remember actually there was like a half hour long one for Jurassic Park, which was on TV one day, and it was like on Sky Movies. And I recorded that. So I had the Jurassic Park movie. And then after the movie, I recorded the making of. And I remember watching that over and over and over again in the 90s. But you couldn't, from what I can remember, you couldn't go and buy that making of. You know, when you bought the Jurassic Park movie on VHS, that making of wasn't on it. No. Um, and I was fascinated watching that. It was James R. Jones actually narrated that. That might be on the new Blu-ray and DVD versions now. 
But um, just watching the animatronic T-Rex and stuff and how that was built and it looked so real. It was amazing looking. Yeah, movie making magic. Like, we just didn't know how that stuff was done back then. Like, you really, like you said, you just had to go to a library and, like, take out a book and just hope that they had a section on the movie you wanted to find it. Because uh, there was nothing. That's why DVDs were such a revolution at the time. And now we kind of yeah. moved away. Like, they just keep recycling extras. But back then, every DVD that came out usually had a making of documentary. Usually had some interviews on it. It was very rare that they did. And that was, like, the big selling point to upgrade your VHS yeah. to DVD. It was like, hey, hours of extras on here. And I, that's what sold me yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that the reason I bought my first DVD pair was because... Um, Jaws came out and it had all this extra footage on it. I was like, well, now I need to buy a DVD pair because I'm not going to miss that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's the same kind of train of thought. But my favorite movies were coming out back then. It was good having them on DVD. It was great, you know, because you didn't have to remind the tape. You know, you could skip chapters and then you had your menu. And, uh, and that was all kind of revolutionary for the time you were thinking. But it was, did you say, it was having your favorite movies and I'm making up documentary on there and, and they did used to pull out the stops for a lot of movies and they some having Sego with like a, a like an hour long making up documentary on there it was amazing to sit and find out how they actually developed this movie that you love there was so much content to it but I, I still have like you're a fan of Terminator I still have my Terminator DVD which has the making up on it because it's not on the Blu-ray which is my crazy. Terminator 2 as well has, has all the features and all my Terminator DVDs as well and it's, it's great revisiting them and learning how to make those movies. That's one of the most fascinating things to me. I, that's something that I always eat up. I mean, today I was just watching uh, the just the one extra that's on the movie that I reviewed, uh, One False Move, and like I just love that. I love hearing like everything that went on in the making of the movie. I think it adds to it. Like, yeah, you might be pulling the curtain back a little bit, but it's easy for at least for me to like defy my reality and like get invested in a movie i i I mean i've heard people complain like you know like almost like in a wrestling sense like it's pulling back the curtain and now you know exactly how they did this stuff i think that adds to it in my opinion no i do look i think in hollywood there was a time when they thought that and i think a lot of things were kept under wraps i think now what they used to be because they want to build up hype and anticipation for their movies there is a fascination of how movies are made. Like, take for example, as well, I'm in there like making up books as well. The amount of books that have come out over the last decade about the making of older movies that people have went back and looked at and written. Like, I have books here like The Making of Aliens, The Making of Alien. You know what I mean? But, um, I've said to you as well, um, but I think it's so good now, yet, is uh, The Making of Terminator 1 and 2. I mean, amazing books with loads of photographs and just behind the scenes, just describing how they actually made these movies. I mean, if that's the type of thing that um, synthesizers are into, I mean, it, it's there for them. If people don't want to learn about it, they don't have to read them. You know, they don't have to watch these uh, documentaries. They can just sit down and enjoy the film. And to be honest with you, most people are like that. They just want to sit down and enjoy the film. But for people like me and you who are interested in the process of the making of the movie, it's great that we can have access to it. Yeah, I I think it's uh, I think it's you know exactly just give the option you know you don't have to if you're one of those people like Matt never liked extras he never cared for him but I was always the one I it didn't really matter what the movie was I just always wanted to see how it was made I was always fascinated just because even if it's a bad movie like what caused that movie to be bad like what happened in the creation process of that movie that it fell apart so badly because I don't think anyone ever goes into a movie like with 
bad intentions. I'm sure yeah. there are, but like where it's a cash grab. But I think the creators that they, they don't want a movie to turn out bad, but something happened along that line that caused this to come out in this condition. So I, I'm always been fascinated about what that cause was. Yeah, I just want to go back to what I was saying about Vicky Hill in the Bobcave. <laughs> okay. Really sidetracked there. I I give them a point about saying that she already knew, and this is one of these internet rumors or whatever people say. Like you know, she um, Alfred just let her in. Okay, maybe he shouldn't have let her in. In my opinion, she worked it out. So yeah. Batman or Bruce Wayne goes to tell her, right? And then the Joker arrives, and then obviously she thinks the Joker shoots him, but sees that he's pre- the metal thing of his uh, suit, uh, and the bullet just hits the metal. Yeah, he got lucky with but that one. He did lucky, he didn't shoot in the head. But what if he shot you in the face? That's a risk we were willing to take. When she goes to knock knocks in the uh, newspaper place, he shows her the newspaper clipping from when his his parents were murdered. Gotcha. And she says, "Take a look at the face. It's like the same expression in front of City Hall." Oh, the- and he says. Why do you suppose something like that would be Yeah, it makes you Batman. Drops. She gets up, I becomes Batman, yeah. So she gets up and walks out. So in my opinion, she actually um, worked it out. And that's why I was trying to make the point about people being screen-fed in this day and age. Read between the lanes. She's obviously went up to Wayne Manor, said, is Bruce there? Alfred has said, no, he's not here. And then she says, Alfred, I know he's Batman. Yeah. And then he's probably went, Yeah, and I think that's why, like, I didn't think he was that upset about it, and then they bring it up in Batman Returns, like, he was, like, you went there to go tell her you were Batman anyway, so you were fully prepared for this, like, this is, like, you want to tell somebody, so, like, and honestly, it's got to be a weight lifted off his shoulders, in a way, like, he's not hiding it from everybody, and he can finally talk to somebody who isn't Alfred about it. Yeah, and it was Alfred that actually suggested to him earlier on in the movie, says, so suppose you you should maybe tell her if she's worked it out and she's went to the Wayne Manor and basically had a maybe maybe her and Alfred had a long conversation upstairs on Wayne Manor even before while she brought her down while Bruce was sitting there mulling over his parents' death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you know what I mean? Just read between the lines, and that's the way I look at it. And that's why I try to say it's like a stage play. It's very theatrical. You know, it's it's kind of a wee bit over the top. And that brings me to the point of the mood and feel of the movie. And this is another thing that I, I feel as well. But just this is why this is my favorite Batman movie is that I always believe that Batman works best in a fantasy world. He doesn't work best in a re- reality. Because the idea of a man dressing up as a bat and then out beating up criminals is absurd. So you can kind of buy into this fantasy work that that as I said earlier, this kind of Gotham City, this needs a Batman to clean it up. And then that also ties into them. You can have a guy fall in the Avada acid and not die. You can have a guy have a space pierced with a bullet and have plastic surgery and come out just with a big smile and have no other scars. You know, it's just all a fantasy. It, it's, you know, and I just think that once it starts moving into the realm of reality, that's to me when the cracks start to show because it's just a self concept. Yeah, uh, and that's I, I agree 100%. That's exactly why I think that this is my favorite Batman film also. And I think why the Nolan Batmans actually haven't aged as well for me as this movie is. It is a fantasy film. It takes place in a world that it's stuck in time. You can watch this anytime, and it still feels the same. You don't worry about things aging because it's of its time. It's of its a period in time, of this time, this Batman. You know, when we get to the Nolan Batmans, and then even recently with The Batman... 
you know, we see Robert Patterson's Batman walking onto a crime scene and like everyone's like looking at him. It's like, yeah, um, if that really happened in the real world, if a guy starts bringing a man dressed as a bat onto a crime scene, a lot of questions are going to be asked, you know, <laughs> so yeah. this movie, you don't ask those questions because you buy into the story that they're trying to tell, you know, and Burton yeah. was perfect for that. Like movies like Beetlejuice and Edward Scissorhands, they create worlds and he created yes. a world for Batman. Yes, 100%, I agree with you. And I know that when Burton had an... Um, I think it was a meeting with Danny O'Neill, who um, was one of the foremost writers of Batman in the 70s, um, possibly the 80s. He was one of the writers, I think, brought the darkness back to Batman because they, they got very camp and very late in the 60s. And he, he was one of the ones who helped bring back the more serious stories, more serious from the most scary arcane of Joker as well. And it was him that actually told... I think it was him told Burton, you know, Get, get the word right, and you'll get Batman right. And that's why they concentrated so much on the word. And you're right, it's, you're going into your words. And once you believe that word, you can believe anything can kind of happen. And that's why it's endured, and I agree with you. And you know what I said earlier on, I don't want this, don't, I don't want it to become a Nolan versus a Burton thing. I like the, the I like Batman against, I like the Dark Knight. Not a big fan of the Dark Knight raises. No. But what I will say is that the Dark Knight to me is not a it's not a perfect movie. It's not as good, in my opinion, as what people say. When people laugh at Jack Nicholson dancing the Prince music while going through the museum, I find it absurd that a man dressed in a bat costume is beating people up in a nightclub. Yeah. It doesn't work for me. Why, why is he in a nightclub? Why did he have to be in a nightclub? Why could he not have grabbed him when he walked out of the nightclub? And you know, and somebody said to me when we were watching the movie um, one time when I was watching The Dark Knight, and that's why I brought it up earlier. It was actually my dad says me. I was watching one day about the, the the Joker in The Dark Knight. How did that person hide anywhere when he looks like that? <laughs> and Batman's not finding him. Yeah. So I, I say I don't want to make it a versus thing. It's just that this is why I just think that for me, Batman. Uh, in 1989 works better for me and to me it's a more rewatchable film and what I like about it I agree. I also think that one thing about Nolan's Batmans and why I think they haven't aged as well and why The Dark Knight, because The Dark Knight for me when it came out was, it changed my life. I mean, I saw that movie in the theaters nine times in its first run. It's just, it is the real world. They're going for Batman in the real world. You know, they bring up Rico cases and stuff that you have to watch. You have to know about how the real world works. Whereas this movie, you're only operating in this Gotham City. This Gotham City, we don't know where it fits in the rest of the world, where it even is, because it's its own city, it's its own entity. Whereas Gotham City in Nolan's world, and I get what you're saying, you don't want to compare them, but I think Nolan was smart enough to know that he didn't need to make, he wanted to make his own Batman movie. He didn't try and copy Tim Burton, which I appreciate, but what he was going for is completely different. You know, you had to operate in the real world, so his tech in those movies are going to age, whereas the stuff in this movie is ageless, in my opinion. And you're right as well. Um, I don't disagree with the group that Nolan took with Batman Begins. And I like The Dark Knight, even though I think it's got a lot of problems. But I felt as if by the time he got The Dark Knight raises, he kind of was um, the victim of his own success. Once you start bringing Batman into the real world, then you start having problems. He started to bring the fantastical into The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight raises. And you start thinking, well, this is supposed to be in the real world. So how does that work? Or how does that happen? And that's very convenient. Yeah. Whereas in a fantasy world, you don't have to worry about that. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's he started to trip himself up by the time he got to the 
third act of the Dark Knight, and the Dark Knight raises. Well, that's actually my biggest problem with the Dark Knight is its third act, and then the Dark Knight Rises, I have just issues for days, and then I've heard people defend it as, well, he's Batman. It's like, but they didn't set that world up for, oh, he's Batman. They set it up as he's a real person who decides yeah. to be Batman. So that doesn't work in the world that Nolan has created. That works in the Tim Burton yeah. universe, though, is that he is Batman, and you could buy into that. You could buy into, like you said, we are already bought into a guy falling in a vat of chemicals. We don't know what the chemicals are. We just know that it's a big green Think of chemicals, and that whatever that chemical is, it killed him, and he came back with no skin tone and green hair, and that's who he is, <laughs> you know? And, and now, as you said about the world that Tim Burton built, and that's what I always said, Tim Burton stays within the roots that he, of the world he built, but because like, Nolan's is in the real world, we know the, world, the roots of the real world, so once he starts breaking the roots of the real world just to fit his story, that's when you start to go, uh, that doesn't work for me. You know what I mean? But Tim Burns established a fantasy one, and you can kind of suspend your disbelief for two hours because it's within this fantasy world. One of the things Tim Burton said as well about because it had to have his Batman had to have some kind of groundedness to it, you know, because it is a guy who does not have superpowers and he put the suit on and he goes out and made me beat criminals up. He got a few gadgets. One of the things he actually said was is that they give the gadgets, he says, enough clumpiness that you could believe that it's something that somebody would build and it would work. So when you see like the grappling gun, you know what I mean? You see the batarang when he takes out and it flips open, all in theory, wouldn't work. <laughs> but you believe the work because, the, as he said, there's enough kind of like clunkiness to it that you could believe somebody would make that Batman and, and he would throw it somewhere and it would, and it would work. That's a very good point that he made about, about that. And it's the same that I said earlier about the bat suit. That bat suit, like we all know now in hindsight, with our making of documentaries, is that he couldn't have much movement in the suit. He was very claustrophobic and stuff like that. But the way the film was shot, the way it was edited, you could believe that Bruce was inside that suit and it protected him from damage and it gave him a bit of power that he could take on these criminals uh, and, and knock them out or beat them up and tie them up or whatever it is he needed to do with these criminals. Yeah. We, the editing is so great that he, they're able to cut around certain things. And like in the Dark Knight films, it's a different style. They wanted to see the full fight scenes. You wanted to see Batman throwing every punch, every kick. Whereas this, you know, we kind of get like glimpses of him fighting. But it's really, it's edited to a point where you don't see too much. You know, everything's kind of done fast. You know, he's kind of like throws some blocks. And that's really it. You know, a couple kicks and punches. Nothing too over the top. I think by the time we get to 2008 and then The Dark Knight Rises, you know, people want to see more, whereas the editing works perfect for this film. And speaking of the fates, and I, this is another nitpick that people have online as well. This is just turned into nit, nitpicks from Batman, and we're going we're gonna to iron it <laughs> Yeah, we're going to fix the problems that people have with this movie. <laughs> yeah, people are going to say, listen, you guys are right. We're going to look at this in a completely different light. So when he gets up to the top of the cathedral and he's fighting the big guy with the glasses, <laughs> um, and he's beating them up with the sunglasses. He's beating, he's beating them up, beating Batman up. And people are like, uh, "How did Batman get beat up by him?" But we seem to forget that Batman has just been in a, a plane crash, and he persevered and went up loads of steps um, to get into this bell car. But I was always of the opinion that that actual goon was based on Mike Tyson. Now I have never ever heard this anywhere. I think it was because this was 1988, 89, and Mike Tyson. Was the heavyweight champion of the world, and that guy, that goon, is throwing punches, make make pacing, make combinations, make pacing does. 
So mm. it's kind of like them and saying, this is Batman versus the heavyweight champion of the world. Yeah, if you've ever played the game Mike Tyson Punch-Out, too, you know, uh, he's very hard to beat. <laughs> Tyson couldn't even beat him. No. Nope. He played it. There was a video of him playing it. He's made. He couldn't, he couldn't get past the first guy. <laughs> Which is crazy because I think that's Glass Joe or something. Something very easy with the first. I can't remember what the first guy's name was. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it is Mike Tyson. Uh, and I could see that. I also love the Joker. The fact, again, another thing you have to buy into and you should buy into. I mean, he became the Joker pretty fast and he was able to get a whole line of cars and outfits together for all of his goons, which I, I, I absolutely love yep. that. So, I mean, come on. If you're going to poke holes like that, like there's plenty of holes to poke if you want to poke them but i just don't think yeah. that that's necessary to the to the movie that they put out i think the movie itself works pretty much perfect in my opinion i mean i i get yeah. that there's holes like we we've both said this before like if you want to look for the flaws they're there i think the movie's aged great in my opinion i think it's aged better than most batman movies have uh, you know it's way better than anything that came out on the 60s show in the 60s movie i just think it's overall one of my favorite films i love this movie i watch it all the time i i will continue to watch it for the rest of my life it's one of those cornerstones in my film history and just in my life it's a movie that i just constantly think about no listen i, I totally agree with that i've been the same i think i said um before john is i actually seen it in vhs i think it was that autumn of 1989 because i, I think it was too young to be go to the cinema. I actually have memories of my parents going me to see um, Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. And Great I think book. that was the appeasement. They couldn't bring me to Batman because I, I, I know that it tortured them to bring me and they didn't bring me. And then I came out of VHS. But that following October 1990, I was brought up VHS by my brother for my, uh, must have been my ninth birthday. And I still have that VHS <laughs> in the attic. It's on a box in the attic. And, and um, it been a couple of years then in the early 90s where I stopped then watch it and then and then I revisited it again of around fourteen or whatever. Ever since then I've I watched it I've watched it at least once a year. And it is just one of my favorite films. It's the type of movie that it's like a comfort film. You know, you've had a bad day, you're feeling tired or you're not feeling well, you can fire it on. You don't have to pay too much attention to it. I'm always entertained that from start to finish. And all those albums we talked about earlier on about the set design and the costumes and the new and the Danny Alfman score, Jack Nicholson's performance it just entertains me no end. And that, that's what I also want to say as well when we talk about it being a fantasy movie. And that's one of the things that I actually miss about the Joker ever since this movie. And it's not that I want a carbon copy of Jack Nicholson. Because uh, nobody to me could do it like, like Jack. The Jokers that we've had since Heath Ledger, Jared Leto, Walking Phoenix. And I haven't, I haven't seen the Jared Leto one. Oh, it's bad. What I don't think this Joker was the gags. We lost the comedic element of, him, of uh, the Joker, I feel like, once we got to like. I mean, there's some comedy with, uh, I guess, with all three of them. I mean, Jared Leto went way too over the top, and it's ridiculous, and I don't recommend watching any of his stuff. I think it's pretty bad, to be honest with you. But if you look at it, just what Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix, it's all really solid. It's just different. I think Jack Nicholson is still the best Joker, in my opinion. I think he's perfect. He is yes. perfect casting. The only Joker I wish we could have seen, and it's the time has passed, and I hope they don't do it, is uh, Willem Dafoe, I think, could have been a good Joker. Yeah, I've seen people talk about Willem Dafoe playing the Joker. The ship has sailed on that one, unfortunately. I think he's in his 70s. And, you know, Jack Nicholson, I never noticed as a kid, but, like, as I've gotten older, I, I noticed in the beginning before he puts the makeup on, he is definitely a little bit older in age, and, like, he's a little heavier, and you can kind of notice it, but I never I mean, noticed it until I was, like, 
in my mid to late twenties. I don't know why. I just I feel like I notice like people's yeah. age now as I get older. Like I watched the. Uh, you ever see my my, my oh, cousin yeah. Vinny? Well, in that movie. Joe Pesci is in real life. He's like in his forties, and Marissa Tomei is like twenty three. Never cared about their age difference, but then I watched it the other day, and Joe Pesci looks like a man in his late forties, and I'm like, yeah, I can notice the age yeah. difference now. <laughs> but, you know, the, the funny thing is, it's like you, you're saying, or it's like the older I'm getting, is like older movies that I watch. Some people are in these movies, and the media always do older men, but now I'm reaching their age. And they don't look like older men anymore. It's really weird. They they they, they look at each other starting to look younger. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm getting older. <laughs> now the opposite. Maybe it's like I, I think as I approach them, I, I start noticing their age, like even Bill Murray, and it's like I start noticing their age because I'm noticing the age on me now and I, I guess I'm like point looking like I think I'm trying yeah. to find comfort in aging. <laughs> so I'm looking at them like, Oh look, they're still doing it at their age. <laughs> well the thing is Nicholson actually would have been even more perfect as a younger man because he was slimmer. Yeah, he would have worked out so much better as a younger man. He just, you know, 1988, 89, and, you know, we know about Jack Nicholson. He had some miles on his body. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a party man. Oh, yeah. That's why that song fits out perfectly for him by Prince. (laughs) And that's the thing, too. I actually think that his version of the Joker, in my opinion, he had the right balance, you see. He was scurry and sinister when when he had to be, and dark when he had to be. But he also had that comedic element to him where he was a wee bit unpredictable. From when he falls in the vat of acid to when he gets to the cathedral, he's still developing. And I feel as if he's only the fully formed Joker when he's in the cathedral because he has the acid flower, he has the long gun, and when he gets punched, he has the chattering teeth. Yeah. He's coming in a word, like, where's the chattering teeth come from? <laughs> and then when he's on the ledge, he, he's got the hand that comes off when he says... Uh, land your hand. <laughs> he's and got... then when he finally falls off the cathedral and he's laying there, he has the laugh box. I that's per- I loved it actually how he dies and he's still smiling, just showing that they, like you said, now he's just the full fledged joker. He's that's it. Everything's a joke to him. He even like he's getting his ass kicked and he can't stop himself from making jokes. You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses on, would you? Huh? He just can't help yeah. himself. I, 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 love, I love that. Yeah, but he's, he's backing up, backing up. And you see him getting his coat. Like, what's he going to pull out? And he just puts glasses on. Yeah. We had a guy with glasses on, would you? Yeah. Like he, he just waits for a second. Batman, it was actually a split second before he just looks at him. And then before he hits him. But the me, yeah, that's the way I read it. I'm probably reading too much in it. The me, he's, he's like, even though he is the Joker from when he falls under the acid, but the me, it's kind of like, he's, he's completely lost. And by the end, by the time he's in the cathedral, he is completely lost. And, and he's pulling out all the stops, and he and he's a showman, and that's what the Joker is. He's a clown. He's a showman. Like even standing on the ledge when he's when they, when they've got the spotlights up there, and he's sticking his his backside out and wiggling it down at the police and things like that. I mean, it's just so entertaining. Yeah, and that's just for me. It's more entertaining than any other Joker. I mean, you can put as many Jokers out that are scary as you want, but I the Joker to me has to be sinister, but yes, he has to be entertaining as well. Yeah, because, like, Batman's already got enough dark mood for us. It's fun seeing him go against somebody who is... Because he's dark, and he Batman himself, he's a very dark character, but he's the hero. So he's not... A, but he's not a white hat-wearing hero. He's not a... Sh- he is a showman in his own way, but it's very dark. Whereas the Joker, he's the evil character, but he's not a dark evil. He's dark in his 
own way. It's sick. It's psychotic. It doesn't make sense for what he's doing. He wants to be the showman. He's going for laughs. That's what makes it work yeah. out perfectly. He's like he's like a stand-up comedian. He wants the laughs. Like, I mean, he shakes a guy's hand and electrocutes him to death. And he's like, <laughs> your friends, you know, they're real tough people. <laughs> like, he's always going for the gag. He says, uh, uh, one got a little hot under the collar. Yeah, he's white. He's like fanning him as he's like electrocuting and dying. <laughs> then he talks to the dead yeah. body after yeah. they all leave. Like, that's what I mean. It's the absurdity, it's you know, uh, of, of the character, and that's what that's what keeps me entertained throughout. There's only so many times I can watch somebody do a pencil trick. And yeah. You know, the first time it's shocking. The second time it's alright. The third time it's meh. Know, kind of a one-trick pony in a way like you know i like this joker's tricks a little bit more they're a little bit more funny and entertaining i still think this is the best Batman movie um and i think that anybody who's interested in comic book movies that they, they should go back and revisit this um if they haven't seen them if you're in the marvel if you're into the modern Batman movies and you haven't seen this one definitely go back and watch it and i also recommend superman as well because they're the movies that actually started it all. Like to me, Superman '78 is the is like the Godfather of superhero movies, and Batman's like the Goodfellas, I suppose. That's a fair way. That's a fair way of actually looking at it. Actually, like yes, the Godfather really started the mob movie trend, but Goodfellas did it cool, you know. <laughs> Whereas uh, Superman yeah. is like you know, it, it's got the tropes, but it's got all the clean tropes in there whereas when we get to the uh, when we get to batman it's a little bit more darker and sinister and kind of molding into what it would become today it's starting the mold it's, it's a bit it's a bit quicker as well a bit more stale about it and uh, very stylized i mean like, and i would say to anybody if you're in the comic book movies watch some of the, one of the movies that came out that the likes of me mentioned like teenage movie ninja problems and the mask and um the Crow, obviously, I know The Crow's got a major following, like, you know, it's a very big cult movie. I love Maybe one of my favourites, but all I'm saying is, is that those, to me, are the comic book movies that we used to get few and far between back then. You know, we didn't get them oversaturated every summer, but those are the ones, to me, that would have building blocks to where we are today with, with comic book movies. Yeah, I would think that we actually ruined comic book movies, but that's a story for another day. Uh, I think we've gone, we just watered down the entire market on superhero films. We got to pull it back, I think. But anyway, guys, yeah. thanks for being here with me and David on an episode of the Let's Talk podcast, Talking Batman. We'll be seeing you guys again with another film in a few more weeks, and we really hope you enjoyed this one. We'll be seeing you around. Peace.